Welcome to Being Honest with My Ex. My ex is Peter C. Haywood. My ex is SJ, better known as Honor Eastley. We were engaged for two years and, and then, then we, we broke, broke up. up and then we stopped talking to each other for a year and now we do a podcast together. Would you have a baby with me? If I can get you to cry next podcast, we'll have a hat trick. <laughs> you don't know this, but I have a very vivid image of what your penis looks like. What? <laughs> if I met you now, I do not think that I would go out with you. Oh my God. I think if I met you now, I'd, I'd fall more in love with you than I did the first time. Hey everyone, Peter here with some updates on all the things going on in the world. So, first of all, thank you everyone who replied to our last uh, our last episode with advice on, you know, what you like about the podcast and what you think we should do with it, etc. We got some really lovely emails, and as soon as I've uploaded this, I'm actually going to go through and respond to them. But, like, I just, I really appreciate it. We, we weren't sure what people liked, and now we have a better idea because you've told us what you like, and that has made things easier for us. Uh, so yeah, first of all, I just want to thank everyone who sent an email in and said that they missed us. We miss you too. Like SJ and I have really started to miss doing the podcast. It's only been, I think a month and we're already like, I want to tell you all this stuff. And, uh, like we, we obviously talk outside of this, but it's different. I don't know. We miss it. Um, so when SJ gets back from Sri Lanka, she's in Sri Lanka at the moment, uh, then we are going to have a big chat, probably record it, work out what we're going to do with the podcast, but just know that your voices have been heard and it's really appreciated. Uh, secondly, on a more personal note, I'm feeling much better. I was very stressed last time. Um, since then, I've run a Kickstarter and it did really well. And it has left me with a little bit more time and money. And that is always good for relieving stress. As well as that, things with my boyfriend Lucy are just the best. The very best. And things are great. You know, things are just great. Uh, okay, here's, here's, here's the big news, now that I've, you know, warmed you up with that little news. SJ launched her new podcast. It's called Starving Artists. You can visit it at starvingartistpodcast.com, and it is amazing. It's so good. It has gotten 10,000 downloads in the first week. It made it to number, I think, number 10 or maybe number 9 on the iTunes store in Australia. From the moment it launched, it was number 1 in arts. SJ has worked her little heart out on this and it is really just paid off in spades like she's so happy with the result and uh i mean she's sj so she's still freaking out uh perpetually but she's just like yeah she's been blown away by the response um it's it's a really good show and you should definitely listen to it starvingartistpodcast.com or just search itunes for starving artist if you like it if you check it out and you like it leaving a review is insanely helpful uh that's a big reason she managed to get up to like the top of all the charts because she had a bunch of like people would listen to it and then immediately leave a review super super helpful especially if you're in canada and that sounds weird but right now she's uh yeah she, she hit the top 100 in the u.s itunes charts i believe and she was like i said number nine or number 10 in the australian itunes charts and Canada, uh, which she was hoping to do well in, lesser response. So if you are in Canada, please go check it out and leave a review. That would be super helpful. Uh, the first episode is called Fuck Plan B. It stars Tom Dickens, who took the advice of his friend Amanda Palmer and quit his job to become a full-time creative. The second episode is about how to negotiate a raise, and it's, oh, it's super interesting. Um, even if you're not a creative, which is what the... Sorry, I should mention the podcast about uh, the meshing of, of creativity and money and what it's like to be a creative professional. And even if you're not that, the second episode is is spectacularly good because it's about how to ask for a raise. 
And this is another thing I never thought about, but like the advice in there is rock solid and taking the steps, even if you're not planning to ask for a raise is going to like result in happier work life, etc. Uh, this intro is going so much longer than I expected to, but um, the podcast is magnificent. Like I really recommend checking it out. The third episode is about me. I'm in it and we're going to play it for you right now. That's right. Following my little intro here, we are going to put on... Episode 3 of Starving Artists, where SJ interviews me about making money through Kickstarter and the stresses of running a business, etc. And I think it's really good. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Next week, we're going to upload another episode, uh, one that's going to come later in the season. So I think it's like episode 9 or 10 in the Starving Artists season. But you're going to get it early because we love you. Yeah, seriously, we, we appreciate the fuck out of you guys, especially you're so responsive. It's beautiful. It's so nice clicking through and getting all these really gorgeous emails. And so, yeah, sorry this intro has gone so long. I am not used to talking by myself. Um, I know you miss SJ. I miss SJ too. We all miss SJ. But to summarize, check out SJ's podcast, starvingartistpodcast.com. Stay tuned for episode three of that podcast. And we'll hopefully be back next week with another episode of Starving Artist. And then in a few weeks' time with regularly scheduled content, which I'm excited about because I've missed it. We'll be back soon, and if you miss SJ, then get ready for her beautiful voice coming up now. I don't want to be a starving artist. I don't want to be a starving artist. I just want to find a way to live. Hello, I'm Anna Eastley. You're listening to Starving Artists. This is a podcast about art and money and how we are going to make those things work together. It's not something that's really talked about in great detail and it can be kind of mm, taboo maybe to talk about, particularly around art. And I started this podcast so that I would have an excuse to talk to the creators I admired and ask them really nosy questions about how they make money work for them. I'm actually coming to you today from Sri Lanka in the back of a guest house in Sri Lanka in a tiny town called Ella, where I keep repeatedly singing the song Umbrella by Rihanna. And I'm not sure whether it's endearing or slightly annoying. <laughs> we shall see. This episode is going to feature an interview with Peter C. Hayward. Peter's actually one of my best friends. He's also my ex-fiancé my co-podcaster for the other podcast that I do, Being Honest With My Ex, and he is the king of Kickstarter. Last year, Peter launched a Kickstarter for his first board game, Scuttle, which went 3,000% over its initial goal and made $87,000. He then followed that up by releasing another game through Kickstarter later that year that made $89,000. In this episode, Peter talks a lot about board games. In Peter's life, he talks a lot about board games. I have zero interest in board games, but Peter, he really knows his stuff when it comes to Kickstarter. So keep in mind when you're listening that board games can be swapped out for something that isn't board games. In this episode, we talk at length about the trials and tribulations of Kickstarter, what it's like to run your own company, which is a thing that Peter's now doing, and how to survive outside of the approval loop where you're not really sure how great you're doing. <laughs> and when you achieve greatness, you're not sure how great that is. 
I hope you like this episode all the way from Sri Lanka. I can't believe I can do this from here. Thanks for listening. Peter, we are talking over Skype and we are going to talk about Kickstarter. You're kind of like the Kickstarter king, aren't you? <laughs> I'm definitely not the Kickstarter king, no. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> so, but in my world, in my kingdom that I know, you are the Kickstarter king. So in, in your kingdom, I'm the king. Of Kickstarter, not in general. <laughs> Just Kickstarter. <laughs> Peter, tell us, other than being the Kickstarter king, who are you and what do you do? I am an entrepreneur, which is a new term that I've used to describe myself. Um, oh, really? I've never heard you say that before. Yeah, it's quite new. So I, I've been a creative professional for coming on five years now. And for the first four years, I was just an author. So I wrote books and people paid me money for those books. And that was how I made a living. Just an author. <laughs> it's very easy to define. And now I make some money off Kickstarters, some money off running a business, some money from freelancing. I still make money from residuals from my old books. I make money from doing some podcast stuff. So I'm like, I don't really have a job title anymore. So now I'm an entrepreneur. But the, the main the main source of income I have is making board games and uh, with my little board game company, Jellybean Games. But you make most of your money through Kickstarter for Jellybean Games, right? Yeah, Jellybean Games is primarily a Kickstarter company. Like 95% of our income has been through the two Kickstarters that we've run and the one that we're currently running. And without Kickstarter, I would not have a business or employees or <laughs> the ability to sustain uh, an income. So tell us about your first project. Because you first did a Kickstarter project like this time last year yeah my first kickstarter launched one year and two days ago and it was called scuttle it was a little card game based on a game i used to play as a kid called cuttle and i made it because i wanted to start a board game company and creating board games is a really effective way of doing that <laughs> and so <laughs> i made uh, scuttle and i put it up on kickstarter it had a three thousand dollar goal and 11 months ago from not today exactly, but roughly today, the campaign ended at $87,000. Yeah. $3,000 goal, $87,000 in the end. So just short of 3,000% of what it was aiming for, which I was, I was <laughs> genuinely floored by. Like, I, I put it up with a $3,000 goal knowing that I would probably make like five to 8000 and secretly in my heart of hearts, wishing and hoping and dreaming that I might make $12,000. The $3,000 goal, was that actually how much it cost to make the game? So at that point, I'd already put $3,000 into it. So that first Kickstarter was really more of an investment than it was meant to be a moneymaker. Uh, I wanted to Kickstarter later projects like Dracula's Feast, which was the second game I made. But one thing I'd learned from doing a bunch of research on Kickstarter is that people are much more likely to support your projects if you've got a proven success. So there's a blog called Kickstarter Lessons by Jamie Stegmeier. It's amazing. It is the, the single best blog on Kickstarter that has ever existed and probably will ever exist. Well, because he's got like hundreds of posts up there now, right? Yeah, he's got like three or 400 posts up there. And I read through all of them. And then I read through all of them again. And so like I spent a lot of time just absorbing all this information. And one of the things he mentioned on there was rather than make your dream project first, make something little. Make, so, so Scuttle is just really a deck of cards. Like it's a game that comes in basically a deck of cards and it's very hard to go wrong with a deck of cards. There's literally hundreds and hundreds of deck of cards on Kickstarter all the time and they, they always fund. Look, if someone could find a way to really 
fuck it up, I'm sure that they have. <laughs> I'm sure there's a way to really <laughs> screw up a deck of cards. And so uh, Scuttle is, is a good game, but it wasn't the game that I, you know, I wanted to make that was burning in my stomach and keeping me awake at night. And so I made Scuttle just to have made a game, to have gone through the process, to have made all the mistakes, to have learned all the lessons, so that when I came back with a bigger game, people were like, oh, this guy, he actually delivers on his games. He actually makes stuff that he says he'll make. We'll, we'll, you know, give him a shot now. So yeah, Scuttle was never meant to be a big project. It was, it was meant to be, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't disappointed. I wasn't like, no, keep your money. <laughs> Stop supporting my project <laughs> and making me really successful. I was genuinely blown away by the, the level that it reached. I was not expecting that at all. Yeah. And just to mention, like Kickstarter has really become the place where board games get made you know this we're talking about you making a board game and kickstarter has become indie board games central not only indie board games now uh like there's very few companies who don't use kickstarter in the board game industry because the thing with board games is to make a board game you have to design it in like america or australia wherever you are and then pay for the art art for a board game is so much more than any other type of medium like a book art would have like a cover and maybe some illustrations uh, like a, a picture book is going to have the most art of any kind of book, yeah? <laughs> sure, yeah. Card games, on average, need about two to three times as much art as a picture book needs. Oh, sure. Because okay, yeah, yeah. you can have dozens of cards and they each need individual art. So you need to come up with a game idea. You need to play test it a bunch, which can take months or years. You need to get all the art. Then you need to get it printed. Uh, and everyone prints in China because it's so much cheaper. Like it, it's about one quarter of the cost of printing anywhere else. Hmm. Then you need to ship it. And board games are so expensive to ship because they're they're really heavy and they're really bulky. And then you need to ship it from China to the US and then ship it out to everyone who wants a copy. So board games are just this enormous money sink. And Kickstarter is a way of saying, hey, do you like the idea of this board game? Great. Pay for it now up front. You'll get it in like six to eight months. And that way we know that we won't go bust trying to make a, a fun game that everyone will like. And so more than any other industry, the board game industry has really moved on to Kickstarter. Like it, it basically, the board game industry is on Kickstarter these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's interesting to note just because there's, there's different types of Kickstarters that people can do. So like ones where there's, it's basically a pre-order situation. So the ones that you've been running are pre-order. You get a product at the end. There's different kinds of Kickstarters like, hey, I want to fund my album or... I saw one the other day that was for an animatronic miniature Einstein. (laughs) (laughs) That is, again, also in the product category. They are pre-ordering. But the thing was like $3,000 to buy the little tiny Einstein. And I was like, that thing is going to be a piece of shit. (laughs) Did you get one? I I didn't. (laughs) So, yeah, there's a lot like the board game industry is really the pre-order side of Kickstarter. And then there's stuff which, I mean, even albums are generally on the pre-order side. Like you you kickstart an album and maybe they haven't recorded it yet, but with a board game, you might not have gotten all the art yet. At the end of it, you know you're going to get a product. So at the end of a board game kickstarter, you're going to get a board game. At the end of an album kickstarter, you're going to get an album, like Amanda Palmer's crazy successful album. And then there's the other type, which is, hey, look, we want to make this thing and we just genuinely can't make it without money. Do you want this cool thing to exist? If so, support us. The most successful Kickstarters tend to be the product ones, like the Pebble Watch is a famous example. Or that fidget cube that came out last year that made like yeah. seven or eight million dollars. But there is also the other kind of Kickstarter, which I honestly know a lot less about. Like I, I, I've tried to run one and it, it did fine. It made its goal, but it wasn't like a huge hit. 
Whereas the, the product ones can really be the huge hit, even if you're an unknown, like I was when I made my first Kickstarter. Yeah, that's true. You kind of need an audience or a thing that people know and want, or you need like a thing that people can get. Yeah. So someone once described crowdfunding, which is Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Patreon, as monetizing your audience or monetizing your following, which is a very cold way of looking at it. But also if, yeah. if you're... If you're <laughs> If you're struggling with a Kickstarter, then that's often why, because you didn't have a following to monetize. Oh, sure. Okay, okay, okay. And so, like, within the board game community, there's a, a review site called Dice Tower. And now every year, like, rather than running ads, they're just like, look, once a year we're going to run an Indiegogo campaign and they make $300,000 and that just pays for their whole budget for the next year. And they do it year in, year out. And because they have a big following and people are like, I like this show, I want them to keep making it. I'm happy not seeing ads. This is just how they how they make a living these days. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay. Whereas the product side of stuff, you can be a relative unknown, which I was when I launched Scuttle, and still have uh, what I would call, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the biggest Kickstarter of all time, but for my first Kickstarter, it was very successful. Yeah. So how many backers did you end up having for that first Kickstarter? We had, I think, about 3,500. That is... <laughs> That's a huge amount of people. Yes. <laughs> That's more... So, like, sometimes people tell me I have a lot of friends on Facebook, even though I don't really use my personal Facebook anymore. But I only have, like, a thousand friends on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a lot more people. How... So, wait a minute. How... How... How did you get three and a half thousand people to give you money? Uh, like I said, there's a website called Kickstarter Lessons. I launched my Kickstarter in March of 2016, and I started preparing for it in February 2015. So I wasn't like doing it full time, nine through wow, five. Wow, that's that's a year though. That's a year. Yeah, and so I was. I went in like basically. I made a big long list of everything that you can do right for a board game Kickstarter, and I tried very hard to do all of those things. Which sounds very simple, but there's a lot of things on that list and it's very hard to get all of them right. And I'm not saying I did a perfect Kickstarter, but I, I worked really hard to get every single one of those things as good as I could. And so when people clicked through to the Kickstarter, they saw third-party reviews. So I sent the game out to a bunch of people to review. At the top of my page, I was like, look, you don't know who the fuck I am. I didn't say that. I said, look, here is reviews so that you can click through and be like, oh, this is actually a game. Like, it's very easy to make a Kickstarter page and have people click through and be like, this could be nothing. Like, I have backed a lot of Kickstarters and I have gotten so many games in the mail that I've pulled out and played once and then literally just thrown out. Like, after one play, I'm like, oh, I will never play this again. And so people are kind of becoming a little bit more wary. So having those reviews at the top of the page meant that people were like, oh, this is actually a game that people have enjoyed. Like, provably a thing that I will not be wasting my money on. Um, I... I made all my reward levels super hard to say no to. So the base game was $9, and generally a Kickstarter will be like $14, $15, up to $20 bucks for like the, the cheapest ones. So $9, people would click through and be like, oh, $9, bucks. yeah, sure. Like, why would I not back that? Uh, the game was based on a pre-existing game. It was based on a game I used to play as a kid that uh, no one owns the copyright to, so I adapted it and kind of updated it for modern audience. So again, it was, it was definitely a game that you could play, and it's really goddamn pretty yeah i gotta say the 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 game is is really pretty how do three and a half thousand people like find your project like like how do they find you and a small number of people found me just through the reviews like people who are already following those review sites would have clicked through 
Uh, a few people, I, I had other friends who had Kickstarters and I got them to link to me in, in their updates. And so I got some decent hits that way. Oh, as in, so other, other people who were kickstarting board games, they were writing their Kickstarter updates and they mentioned, hey, you should check out this Kickstarter. Yeah, I got, I got a decent number of people coming from other, other Kickstarter projects that linked to me. But the number one way that people found me was just through Kickstarter itself. So this is not true for anything really other than board games, but like I said, the board game industry is now just on Kickstarter. So if, if I'm like, I might want to buy a game today, let's see what's around. Rather than go to a board game store, I might just log on to Kickstarter and be like, what's happening now? Can I get in on the ground floor? Can I get some of the Kickstarter promos or the exclusives? And so Kickstarter have a thing called Project We Love, and they give it out to about I don't know, maybe like five, 10% of projects. Uh, if I don't think they have a quota exactly, but if, if a project does stuff that they're like, hey, we really like this, this is, this is how we want people to be using Kickstarters, this looks like a cool project, then they'll give you a little badge called the project we love. And you'll go to the top of all the search rankings. And if you click through to games, Scuttle was at the very top of the page. And so a, like Kickstarter just loved my project because it was so pretty. And so they just, they really highlighted it for the entire length of the campaign. Do you know how many people found you just through the Kickstarter website? I think probably about a third of a third of my backers, if not more. Like they, they track how many people come from different things, but it's not 100% reliable. But yeah, according to the Kickstarter stats, a, about a quarter came just through like the Project We Love page and then another fifth or so came just from browsing Kickstarter. <laughs> That's a lot of people. That's, that's like 1,500 people. Yeah. So a, a bunch of people. Like, if it had just been them, and if I had done no other marketing and just Kickstarter had put me up there, I would have still made like $25,000, $30,000. Again, this is not true of industries outside of board games. Like, this is not a typical thing. But the Project We Love thing does exist everywhere. And some people will browse Kickstarter just to see what's on there. I go on there. I was on there this morning um, looking up weird stuff. So we found Einstein. <laughs> no, Einstein was last time I looked around there. Another thing that I did was uh, Reddit, the just the website Reddit, reddit.com. Uh, <laughs> I got a huge number of hits from there. I think I made like over $10,000 for people clicking through from Reddit. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Reddit is really hard because they hate people promoting their stuff. Like they just absolutely hate it. The reason I did well is because I didn't go in being like, hey guys, buy my product. I went into like the board game subreddit, which I've been a part of for years now and I've commented for years. And I was like, hey, here's, here's a story. And people were like, that's an interesting story. And then I was like, and here's the thing I'm talking about. And they're like, oh, I'll click through to that. It wasn't like, hey, buy my thing. It was like, hey guys, crazy story. My Kickstarter's exploded. I didn't see this coming. Isn't that wacky? Yeah, I've seen that a few times on Reddit. I'm not on there much anymore, but I've seen it where it's, it, it's always the story and people are like, oh, now I want to see what the thing is that you're talking about. Rather than, hey, buy my thing. Buy my shit. Yeah. No, Reddit, Reddit, Reddit hate it when people sell to them, but they like hearing cool stories, especially from people who are in the community. It's called the 90-10 rule. Like 90% of the stuff you post on Reddit should not be self-promotion. And that'll let you get away with the 10% that is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of think that that rule applies in a bunch of other places on the internet as well. It's true. It's a, it's a, but Reddit are particularly like... If you sound desperate or sound like you're selling something, they will just downvote you and you will just disappear off the front page immediately. Gone, gone, gone. So I've got a Kickstarter running right now and I did a post that was a little bit too salesy and I got like some sales from it, but really like nothing compared to what I got last time. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So when the Scuttle campaign was on, like how much were you working on it? So... 
like I said, I'd done a bunch of prep and so I'd already mapped out all my stretch goals up to the 12,000 that I thought I'd do. I was very optimistic. I mapped them all the way up to 20,000 <laughs> being like, I'll never hit this, but it'll be nice to have in case I do. And so after, after, <laughs> oh, after I, oh, oh. <laughs> after I blew through that, there was a lot of like contacting the printer and, and finding out, but I mean, ultimately I, I probably worked on it for like 10 hours a week. Wait on only 10 hours a week. That seems like not that much. Yeah, so every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'd do an update. And before the update, I would read through all the comments that I'd gotten since the last update, and I would read through all the messages I'd gotten. And then I would try to answer as many of those messages and comments as I could in the update rather than individually replying to people. Oh, and yeah, okay. now when I run a Kickstarter, I update like twice a week because three times a week is just crazy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, even twice a week seems like a lot. Is that... I mean, I've supported... a. I've, I looked it up earlier today. I've supported 179 Kickstarters and... <laughs> that is so many. I think I've supported like seven. <laughs> when... A, I'm a super backer now. They gave me a special badge. Ah, It's like the scouts, but for the internet. <laughs> And more nerdy. When I support a project and they send out like good, well-written updates, there is no upper limit to how many you can send out. Like, cause I'm invested in the project and I want to hear how it's all going. And like I said, I used to be a full-time author. So I, I like to think I know how to turn a phrase. So I was updating three times a week, but I was making sure that it was full of like interesting content and jokes and pictures and updates on how it was all going. And like there was a running joke in the first campaign where I would start every single update with a different way of saying, wow, like I'd say Jillikas or holy heck or blimey. Actually, I've got to say that you write really good words. You write really good copy. And as someone who has backed your Kickstarter projects, you make really good updates and you're right. It does keep people involved. I've had people message me to tell me, can you please tell Peter how good his <laughs> Kickstarter updates are? <laughs> and I think that that kind of thing is really helpful when you're doing crowdfunding. You know, Amanda Palmer talks about it in her book, The Art of Asking, where she goes through and looks at a few different Kickstarters and bits where people screwed something up or something didn't go to plan. And what happens if you do and don't communicate what's going on? Basically, yeah, the key is like communicate. People are pretty understanding, particularly if they, you know, they're invested and they know you. They know you're one person, for instance. But if you just don't say anything, that's when people get like really that's when people get angry. It's really easy. I, I deliberately limited myself to like those three times a week because it's very, very easy to let a Kickstarter just completely take over your life. In one of the Kickstarter lesson blog posts, he recommends taking your first like one or two days off your normal job. Like whatever your normal job is, take two days off because you are going to be obsessively refreshing and you're going to <laughs> want to reply to every comment as it comes in. You're going to like launch all of all the promo that you've got planned and all that kind of stuff so I, I very much i'm a big fan of tim ferris's book the four hour work week and he talks about batching so like i would look at stuff as it came into my inbox but i would not reply to stuff and i would not deal with stuff and i would not really process stuff until like those right before the update i would read it all i would reply to it all i would be i'd batch it all and i'd be done <laughs> yeah that's a good way of going about it and then a couple of days ago i put up the link and released tickets to the launch party for this podcast and they sold out in 90 minutes of public sales and it was a really weird feeling because i wasn't like ah! i was like i feel uneasy and i keep refreshing everything and <laughs> and like now my only thing to do today is just 
continually look back at this thing, even though all of the tickets were gone. <laughs> like there was nothing else to do. It's just, um, it's a beautiful hole to get stuck in. So you made $87,000 on Kickstarter. What did you do with all of that money? So I, this is actually going to shock you. I made a game and I mailed it out to all the backers. Uh, but that, that does not cost $87,000. So How much did it cost? How much did the game and the posting cost? So all of this is in US dollars. Okay. So I sold about 3,500 copies. I printed 7,000 copies, which is too many. And it's a thing that every single first time Kickstarter does. They're just like, I sold this many on Kickstarter. Imagine how many I'll sell on retail. The thing with like printing board games is that printing 7,000 is not really much more than printing 6,000. Yeah. Which is not yeah. really much more than printing 5,000. So I printed way too many. Uh, and that cost me about 23000 I shipped them out and that cost, I think, about 25000 I don't know the exact numbers on that. That's amazing that the game and the shipping is just the same. That's why Kickstarter is such a big deal because you can get that money up front from people. Yeah. Well, that's a huge amount of money. That's fifty grand there. And a, a lot of people really like, especially first-time creators, they really underestimate how much shipping is going to cost. So I had $5 shipping within the US, $10 shipping international. And for a $9 game, that for me does not feel like that much. But I got probably four people from the industry contacting me and being like, hey, Peter, I want to make sure you're aware you are going to lose money. Like, you are going to get hit by a bunch of shipping costs. I had a friend make a Kickstarter a couple of years back. He made $360,000 off the Kickstarter. Yeah. And ended up a year later, $40,000 in debt. And I totally see how that happens because, like... Like I said, I printed too many. So printing that many and then shipping them all out to backers. And then you've, you're left with like three and a half thousand, which I then shipped over to America and have to pay warehousing fees. And like, if I can sell them all, great. I've made a bunch of money. If I can't, I either have to like trash them and claim it back on tax or just continually pay this warehousing cost. Oh, so you don't have them in your garage? No, no, weirdly <laughs> enough. At the time I kickstarted this, I didn't have an address. I was, I was staying with friends. <laughs> I currently live in Canada, but at the time I like between launching that Kickstarter and that Kickstarter finishing, I moved to Canada as well as that. I'd already, I'd already sunk a bunch of costs into prototype copies and advertising and reviews and launching a company. I have some friends who run a board game company. They gave me advice every step of the way. And they were like, look, make sure you have an an LLC, which is the limited liability corporation. So that if you go $40,000 in debt, it's not you going $40,000 in debt. It's your company and you can walk away from it. So you made $87,000. You spent about 50 grand making the game and getting it to people. And then there was like prototyping and reviewing and paying the artist. Like how much was... The artist got 20% of the Kickstarter. That was the deal that we worked out because she was working on spec. Wait, and what does on spec mean? On spec means that she's working without getting paid up front on okay. the promise of getting a percentage of any money made. Okay. Uh, and it's it's not a standard way to do things. People people don't like it when you do that. She volunteered that, and so she got 20% is a huge percentage yeah, of the Yeah, that's like, that's like 18 grand. Yeah, she, she got a bit over, a bit under $20,000 from that. That means that you, you ended up with like 20 grand. I got nothing. I made $0 from that Kickstarter. Um, I spent all of the rest of that getting the company together, paying for a lawyer, paying for an accountant... And then I put the rest into my next game. So wait on. So that money, you just used it 
to be able to spend on your next Kickstarter. Yeah, so one of the reasons Scuttle did so well is that it was absolutely gorgeous. Like, it's just an incredibly stunningly pretty game. And I, I hadn't expected that. I found the artist just in New York. We met at a cafe. She was like, I'm going to draw your game for you. And I was like, I don't have any money. She's like, I'll work on a percentage. And I was like, well, that is a, a freakishly good deal. Yes. <laughs> Not knowing if she was like, going to go to draw perfectly nice art. She came back and it's stunning. Like it's genuinely one of the best looking games out there. It's all watercolors and it's really cool. Yeah, it is a really pretty game. And so I, I looked at the fact that I made $87,000 and went, you know what? Let's make another pretty game. And so I put, I, I, I had a bit left over for like just the costs of running it, like website and a buffer in case like the print run was totally broken. I had to get a new print run, etc. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't make any money from Scuttle. I put it all into the next one. Because like I said, I made Scuttle to make a board game company. And so I was like, well, great. Now I can afford to make a board game company. And so I, I didn't I didn't pay the next artist $20,000, but I like had that aside in preparation to pay for the advertising, to pay for the art, to pay for all the stuff that I'd paid for out of my own pocket for the first one. So if you were to condense your advice... As someone who has made ridiculously successful Kickstarters, who is the the Kickstarter king of my personal (laughs) Kickstarter kingdom, (laughs) and who's backed, what is it, like 180 Kickstarters? Like, what are the things that tip you to to backing a project? Like, what are the things that are really of value to focus on? So, like I said, I have have backed a lot of duds, and... Board games are better than, say, video games. I've backed probably four video games on Kickstarter and received none of them. Like, they just never deliver. And so the first thing I look for is I want to make sure that they're actually going to make the game. And so part of that is looking at it and being like, is this a realistic price? Like, are they going to be able to make it for this? Are they overcharging or undercharging for shipping? Like I said, a lot of people just, they go bankrupt because the shipping is just insane. Um, I was actually staying with my friends who run a board game company called Greater Than Games. It's quite a big board game company, and I've, I've been friends with them, like, since before I got into board games. And so they were they were on hand the entire time to offer me, like, tips. And because I was staying with them, every time I was like, hey, look, this has happened. I want to do this. What do you think? They're able to be like, oh, yeah, look, that's a really safe idea. Or I would recommend doing it this way. Or Peter you will go bankrupt. Obviously don't do that. (laughs) That sounds like the kind of person you want to have around. (laughs) (laughs) At the bottom of every Kickstarter page, there's a section called risks and challenges. And I had in that like, look, it's a first time Kickstarter. There's going to be risks, but I am good friends with the greater than games guys. They are here to advise me every step of the way. That was really helpful. I think for getting people to look at it and be like, oh, this guy is for real. Yeah. I think that as things like Kickstarter get a bit older because, you know, it's been around for a while. People are a bit more wary. And then you need to build trust with your audience. And so having reviews and stuff being like, yes, this is the thing that's going to get made. But having some way of, of, yeah, showing that to potential backers is really important. The the things that I look for are A, that it's going to get made, B, that there's some reviews up there because I want to make sure that it's a game that humans have actually played and enjoyed. (laughs) And in terms of stuff that's not a board game, there's other ways of including stuff that is reviews. You know, like if you're launching an album having bits of the music up there, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Like when Amanda Palmer launched her album, I backed her because I was like, I've heard her music, I love her music. This is more of that. If you're a total (laughs) unknown, you know, putting three tracks up on the Kickstarter page is enough for people to be like, hey, look, this is actually music that I will enjoy listening to. 
uh, we had some friends launch a, a, a show called Trying My Best, and I'd seen their live show, and I just loved it. Like, it, it's one of the best live experiences I've ever had. So when that Kickstarter came along, I was like, oh, I know that they make good stuff. Click, back, done. There's also an Australian TV show called The Amateur Hour that's really great, and they did a – was it a Kickstarter or was it a possible – I can't remember, but they had a damn good video featuring Tim Rogers and some other people. Tim Rogers is a, quite a famous Australian musician. And they had some really fun rewards. That was one of the ones where it was like you're backing because you like the thing, like you like the idea of what they're doing rather than necessarily product. But they had one which was like you can get your cat featured in this regular segment where we feature cats. <laughs> and that reward sold out immediately. Yeah. <laughs> and they had to, I think they had to offer more, more, more cat spots, more cat opportunities, <laughs> more cat cameos. The one I was talking about from Melbourne, trying my best, they had a spot, which is, uh, you will be in a segment where we punch people in the face and it just sold out straight away. Like three people were immediately like, yes, I would like to get punched in the face in this, in this segment. That sounds great. <laughs> so I, I have backed a bunch of board game Kickstarters and I don't have time to play all the games on my shelf right now. So for me to back something on Kickstarter, there has to be a reason that I don't just wait for it to go to stores. And this doesn't just apply to board games, like this can be for anything, but for board games specifically, it'll often be like a promo card or like uh, there's, there's a game called March of the Ants, which I just love. It's a great game. And the expansion was on Kickstarter and March of the Ants never made it to stores. Like it was not successful enough to make it to retail. And so when the expansion came on Kickstarter, I was like, oh yes, like I will immediately back this because it's the only way I can get it. But it works for non-Kickstarter stuff as well. Like there's a, a thing called the Roost. It's a stand that you put your laptop on. So it's at eye height instead of like hunching over at a cafe. And when that came out on Kickstarter, I was like, oh, I want that. And then I saw that if, just for backing on Kickstarter, like for no extra cost, you get your name engraved on it. And that's something that you don't get when you go out from retail or you can, you know, take it to a store and get engraved. And I was like, done. Like just something little and exclusive like that. I have a little uh, key fob. So it's like a pocket knife, but you put your keys in it and they come out. And it's rather than jangling around in your pocket, it's just a more efficient way of organizing your keys. Thank you for asking. And <laughs> by backing on Kickstarter, you got like an extender so you could fit more keys in. I was like, done. Like you just need something little like that to get people in. So with, with board games, it tends to be a, a a little bit of game content or a little bit of art or something like that that you just can't get in the retail version. So people are like, you know what? Yes, that is worth backing now rather than waiting for it to go to stores. As, as well as that, though, a lot of people just like to get in on it. Like a lot of people back Kickstarters to back Kickstarters. It's just kind of an exciting thing to be part of the creative process like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do that for, for people that I love what they're doing because I want to get involved, which I mean is part of the crowdfunding medium, you know. In terms of distilling this advice, you're saying people need to be able to trust you that the thing will actually happen. Yes, that's super important. <laughs> <laughs> Exclusivity, so something fun that's offered as part of the, that you can only get as part of the Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, or, or, or that it's, it's, you get it for free as part of the Kickstarter. The way yeah. greater the games do it is when you back their game, you'll get a free expansion. You can buy that expansion in stores later, but by backing on Kickstarter, you just get it for free. Okay. And the other thing which you mentioned up top is just like making the thing really pretty, making it look good. Yeah, the, the, the best advertisement for your Kickstarter page is your Kickstarter page. Like you want to work to get people there and then you want the page to sell them the thing. And so with, with Scuttle, with uh, the other games I've done, it's just about making them crazy pretty. 
And as a result, now I'm, I'm so judgmental of board games. I'll pick up a board game and be like, well, this could look way better. What are you doing? <laughs> it's stupidly expensive to make stuff really good, but I think it's absolutely worth it. So in terms of um, what was your best investment for that project? like uh, pro- Probably the, like, and it was, it was a fluke getting the artist that I got, but the work that Kelly put into making this game so pretty, and because she got a percentage, like, it absolutely paid off for her, like... With a $3,000 goal, her 20% would have been $600. Instead, she got close to $20,000. Yeah, wow. And so, like, for her, it was absolutely worth it. But, yeah, for me, investing in in Kelly being like, yes, I'll make this deal with you, and then having the art come out so pretty was was probably the the best thing I did for the campaign. And then also, like, like I said, I read every single Kickstarter lesson multiple times over the course of, like, a year and just tried to internalize as much of it as I could. Yeah. That's part of the reason I've backed so many Kickstarters, because I was like, this looks like it's doing well. Why is it doing well? I want to follow this. I want to be a part of this. I want to see what they're doing. Oh. I was just a sponge for a full year. So you backed other people's Kickstarters just to watch how they do it. Yeah, if they were doing well and if it was a thing that I thought was cool, I was like, yes, I will absolutely back this. Like, I mean, it looks cool, so I want it. But also, maybe I can learn something from this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So your first Kickstarter had a $3,000 goal and made... $87,000. (laughs) I still find that ridiculous. (laughs) And you did another Kickstarter at the end of last year. How did that one go? So that one had an $8,000 goal because I was like, look, the $3,000 goal was like, I will make no money, but I will get the game out to everyone and I'll suffer a slight loss, but it's worth it. This one, I was like, you know what? I actually need $8,000 to get this game out to people. Like that's how much it's going to cost and break even. And I made $89,000 on that one. So more, not that much more though. No, well, I made I made eighty nine thousand dollars on the Kickstarter, and then I use a service called Backerkit for managing all the pledges, so people can like update their address, and they can buy other stuff, and ended up making another six thousand dollars on Backerkit. This is all U.S. dollars, by the way. The Kickstarter world runs in U.S. dollars, and so I made I made eighty nine thousand dollars on the Kickstarter, and then I made another six thousand in the Backerkit. Oh, right. And that one I did not promise the artist 20% of the of the, <laughs> <laughs> of the money. Oh, yeah. How did you work out paying the artist for that one? So that one uh, was with my friend Tanya, who I'd known for 10 years. I bought a fridge from her in Brisbane in 2007. And I'd... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I met her. I, I bought a fridge from oh, her. Oh, no, that's and I how her... you met her. That's how I met her. I, oh, I wow. found... She was selling a fridge. I saw her DVD collection and I went... This is a person I want to know, just purely based on the DVD collection. And so we've kept in touch ever since. And she, between me buying her fridge and now, she worked for Disney for a few years. So she has art chops. And she's just, she's incredible. Like she does the most amazing art. And so I contacted her and I offered her uh, 5% of the Kickstarter and a flat, I think it was $2,000 up front. Oh, right. Okay. So how much did that end up being? 5%? Two grand. So she made about seven, eight grand from that. But then since then, she's come on full time with Jellybean Games. So now this, this is just her job now. Yeah. Is this your job now? I make a little bit from Jellybean Games. I mostly do some board game development work on the side. And like I said, I still get money from my books and I do some podcast stuff that makes a little bit of money and so on and so forth. So I, that's why I'm like, I'm an entrepreneur because I make money from a bunch of different things, uh, including... I'm making a small minority of my income from Jellybean Games with the idea, with the hope that by the end of this year, it'll be my full-time income. Oh, right. So it's not your major source of income now, but you're hoping that it will be. And will that income 
be from Kickstarters? Like, is it going to stay with Kickstarters? Kickstarter is a good way of making a big burst of money in order to, like, fund a project. But in order to, like, pay the bills and, and, you know, pay employees and not just be stressed 24 hours out of every day, (laughs) you need money coming in more reliably. I have seen you stressed. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, I spend a lot of time looking at the amount that I pay Tanya, which is, you know... It's absolutely what she's worth. And then looking at the amount of money that we have in the bank and being like, oh, these numbers add up right now. But if everything goes haywire, they will not. Like, if the US dollar crashes, I can't afford Tanya. Yeah. If I have a Kickstarter really flop, like, if if I had a Kickstarter make less than $10,000, I would be okay. If I had two or three in a row, I would would just run out of money. Yeah, right. And and so the, the trick is to not be a Kickstarter company. The trick is to have products in retail. So when you go into a board game store, you can see my games on the shelf and buy them. And if that happens... Re- and, and the thing is, the games are so pretty that people are going to pick them up. And they're really fun games. So people are hopefully going to buy them and then be like, I want more games from this guy. And so if you can get that happening regularly, that's how you turn it into a sustainable income. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, don't you consult other people with their Kickstarter projects? Yeah, I, I, I do that sporadically. I have a little site set up to be like, hey, pay me to consult on the Kickstarter. Um, only a few people have taken me up on it so far. So it's not, it's, again, it's not a steady income. Like, No, no, no. But you, I mean, you set that up, I think, because so many people were asking you for advice. Yeah, yeah. So after Scuttle did well, after Dracula's Feast did well, I got a lot of messages being like, hey, help me with my Kickstarter. And rather than being like... No, I was like, yes, I will absolutely do that. Give me money. <laughs> and in, in some ways, that's a very nice way of saying no, but it also sometimes turns into money. <laughs> but yeah, in, in, order to, in order to make it my, my income, I need to get into retail, which when you have one product, retailers don't care. When you have two, three, four, five, then they're like, okay. It's a little bit like Kickstarter. They're like, okay, this guy's for real. He's actually producing stuff. He's not going to disappear after selling us one copy. It's amazing, you know, like how much work you have to put in to create an, an oeuvre of a body of work before anyone will take you seriously. Like not just in board games, just in like everything creative. Yeah, uh, but the thing is like you see so many people who are like, that sounds fun. And then they do it and they're like, oh, that is, that is not fun. Like, <laughs> Like running a board game company, a lot of people are like, that sounds fun. And there are parts of it that I like very much. I would never, ever describe it as fun. <laughs> what would you describe it as? The description I came up with that I've had the most other people who run companies agree with is that it's about 60% incredibly tedious work, 10 to 20% quite fun stuff. And then the rest is just incredibly stressful decisions <laughs> with no right answer. Like... It's, it's not like you do a thing and you're like, well, that was the correct answer. You know, a green check mark appears. You're like, Did, was, was, that, was that the best way? I don't, was that the good way to go? I don't fucking know. I was actually just talking with some friends of mine about this, about um, the approval loop. So I was talking about how when I was in high school, right, I was in a great symbiotic relationship with the approval loop. I had external approval of like, yes, you got this mark. You did good in this way. Congratulations. <laughs> Tick of approval. You get a high mark, blah, blah, blah. Like I was very academic and, and that, it's, that, that really worked for me. Um, <laughs> and then going into the arts where it's like none of that stuff mattered. And I've now been out of institutions like that where you get ticks. And it's actually really, it's quite difficult to manage 
particularly when I look at friends of mine who who I like have spent a lot of their time you know like you know in high school they did well and then they went to uni and they also did really well and then they got into this other program that trained them and then they did really well and then they're in a job where they have key performance indicators and you know like they've lived their life within the approval loop which isn't to say like I don't know I don't have a judgment I in some ways I think I was like yeah screw that and now that I've been doing it for a little while I'm like actually that's pretty handy (laughs) running a kickstarter is like doing an exam and at the end you get a mark but they don't tell you what it's out of yeah exactly yeah 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 so you know I'm I'm running a kickstarter right now and it's just hit $23,000 and I'm like out like would it if I'd made different decisions would it have done better would it have done worse yeah it's it's like finishing exam they're like hey great you got 230 And you're like, out, out of out of what though? Like, you just have nothing to compare it to and you don't know if you could have done better or worse. It is, it is a very weird experience. Well, I mean, then you you only have your yourself to compare it to or other people. And neither of those are good comparisons. Yeah, they're not. They're no fun. Yeah, I think that now I've done a lot more things on my own. I'm not as blue sky about them, if that makes sense. Doing your own stuff is like has its own challenges yeah just about about once a month i will be given a choice that is potentially life-changing and no longer just for me but also for other people and it's not like a path i can follow because the industry at the moment is really changing and it's always changing and you know new media and blah 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 by the industry you mean the board game industry yeah 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 well i mean every industry is kind of still reeling from the internet the internet has changed every industry so i'm sure it's not just board games that this applies to yeah but i'm given like this this thing of like okay here are your two options and i just have no clue which one is better and i will talk about it for hours with everyone i know and they'll all be like yeah that sounds really hard (laughs) and you end up just making a decision and you know six months later you look back and you still don't know like there's never any closure you just end up being like well that was the decision i made and I'm, I'm still going so i guess that was the right decision one of the things that really draws me to board games as, as a as a as a gamer is that it presents you with a system and it's like master this system and kickstarter is in some ways much like that it, it's a system and it's just like an invitation to come along and master the system and so like i said i've, I've done quite well with it so far but at the end of a board game, there's a winner. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I definitively won that or I definitively did not win. Or if I'd made these things, I would have I would have done this. Kickstarter is not like that. And so I think that's why it's so appealing to board game people, but also so terrifying when you when you complete it, in inverted commas. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's interesting doing more things on my own and also talking with so many people as part of this project and realizing how much... I really uh, envied other people's success, but because I romanticized it. And then when you get there, it's it's like quite different. Um, yeah. I think that particularly the last one or two years, I've really realized that thing of like, it's not it's not where you are, but how you are. It's kind of cliche, but it's right. The Kickstarter I'm running at the moment has just hit $25,000. All my other Kickstarters at this point had been like $50,000, $60,000. And so on, on one level, I'm like, oh man, like this is just doing so poorly. And then I've looked at some other Kickstarters. And there's one that's running at the moment that is in exactly my genre. And it's just about to hit $250,000. Like it's just absolutely kicking ass. But then Tanya and I have gotten a lot of messages being like, 
you guys are doing so well. Like, it, yeah, it's, it's just been weird for me to be like, oh, actually, like, this is this is not doing as well as my previous two, but it's still doing really, really well. Like, this will let us pay the bills for another six months. This will make a cool game that should do well in retail. This is just a really cool thing generally. And the other really tiny thing to note that's just like a pragmatic thing is that with Kickstarters, most of the funding comes in like the last, is it 24 or 48 hours? So when you visit a Kickstarter page, you can hit the little star and you will get a message when it's got 48 hours to go. So a lot of people, when a Kickstarter's just launched, they'll be like, oh, I don't want to commit to this right now. I'm going to hit the star and see what stretch goals they've unlocked or whether, you know, whether it's been doing well. People like to jump onto a success. Yeah. And so they'll come back and during the last 48 hours, I actually have to turn off notifications entirely. Like normally I get them emailed to me as they come in. So I'll, I'll tell you actually, since, since we started this podcast an hour ago, I have gotten one pledge and that, that's, that's, you know, that's nice. It's not amazing. It's not bad. If this was in the last 48 hours, in the last hour, I would have gotten 60 to 80 pledges. Whoa. it just absolutely takes off like crazy and i just have to shut it down because i can't keep up anymore and so yeah the last 48 hours can really explode based on how well the rest of the campaign is done it's like a, a it's a compounding thing oh sure yeah yeah i mean the more people that get on board the more people that get on board yeah exactly i'm excited to see how it goes we'll, we'll see well thank you for talking to us peter i, I... I'm, I'm gonna be honest it was it was a real effort like <laughs> It is not something that I would want to do on, say, a weekly basis. That would just be <laughs> uh, Peter and I also do another podcast together every week. <laughs> That's why we're so familiar with each other. Uh, it's actually, it's called Being Honest with My Ex. Peter's my ex-fiance. Actually, there's a there's an episode from when you did your first Kickstarter. Yeah, we've been running Being Honest with My Ex since before I started doing Kickstarter. So we kind of followed that whole process. Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if... It's, I don't know, some people listen to the other podcasts and they really, it's a much more diaristic journey of the two of us going through our own creative entrepreneurial ups and downs. Um, but, there's, <laughs> but there's one episode from when you launched Scuttle and you were killing it and I was super jealous of you because <laughs> I was like, oh man. Because there's that weird competitiveness thing with exes and I just felt like such a loser because you just moved to Toronto and were making like $90,000 on Kickstarter and I was just... In the same house. Yeah, in the same house that that we lived in together and, you know... Wearing the same clothes that you were wearing when I left. <laughs> Have you showered since then, SJ? It's, it's, really, it's getting embarrassing at this point. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for talking to us. I, I know you pretty well and I learned a bunch of stuff, so... That's pretty impressive. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to talk to you every time I get a chance to. Cool. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Bye. I love you. Yeah, you do. You do. <laughs> yes, you do. Now, Peter's Kickstarter ended up finishing like only a few hours ago, and it ended up getting almost $57,000. He's pretty chuffed. If you want to follow more of his work and particularly the company that he runs, you can at jellybean-games.com and there's also a link to it in the show notes. As with everything else that we talked about, which we've mentioned quite a few other Kickstarters, check them out. It's all in the show notes. This was actually a really interesting conversation to come at this time and to come back to because I launched this podcast a week ago 
And there was just this incredible response to it. Within a day, the podcast was number one in the iTunes store in, in arts. And within two days, it was it sat at number 10 on the iTunes charts overall. And this is for Australia, like how iTunes works is there's, there's stores for different countries. And <laughs> it was a very weird feeling. And it really relates to what, what Peter's saying about how you get success and then there's no objective measure of it. And it's always moving. And I actually wrote something on Instagram about it that I kind of wanted to share just because I think that thinking about success differently is what keeps me okay and and able to keep doing this kind of work. <laughs> it says, if you had have told me two years ago that my life right now would be my life right now, I would have expected myself to have made it and to feel embodied with success. And I know it's cliche to say, which is why I'm surprised <laughs> that I'm only just now starting to thoroughly understand the concept. But success, she is not a number. That being said, I'm not completely at one with the universe. I've not risen above the trials and tribulations of projects. It's more just there's this idea of how you will feel and then there's actually how you feel. On Saturday, I just passingly checked the iTunes charts and saw that Starving Artist was at number 16 overall. I was alone outside waiting for my friend to come back and I just wanted to like shout in the street. <laughs> I was uncontainable. By the time my friend returned from the bathroom, Starving Artist was sitting at number 13. But these numbers are moving targets. As soon as I was at number 13, I wanted to beat Hamish and Andy, who are like a really famous comedy duo from Australia. And as soon as I beat them, I wanted to make it to the top 10. And as soon as I got to the top 10, I wanted to beat Russell Brand. There's this idea that the big wins would be the most happy moments of my little life. But the transient nature of these achievements means that the excitement around them is always momentary. There's this, there's actually, it's just this giant surreal feeling followed almost immediately by this white hot fear, a fear of loss, of going backwards, of not getting more. The goalposts are constantly in transit and I'm running a race with no finish line. So I'm trying to hold these things lightly to not attach my whole self to them because I like myself <laughs> and I don't want to pin her down to something so callous and cruel and out of my control as iTunes algorithms. I hope you can find something nice to pin yourself to today. And speaking of nice things to pin yourself to, I think that's why I've been focusing way more on you guys who are listening. And I've been totally blown away. Ooh, I'm tearing up by the support that I've gotten from everyone for this project. It's been phenomenal. It's been really amazing and a little bit overwhelming. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation. Speaking of continuing the conversation, you know, podcasts can seem kind of one way, but one thing I love is, is, is actually talking to people about what's happening in the episodes. So if you want to, you can find Starving Artist on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. 
This podcast was made possible by everyone who's supported me on Patreon. This episode was edited by Peter C. Hayward. That's why he sounds so good in it. And people have been asking me who does the intro music and I forgot to put it in the credits because it's just me. I did it. Love and recording a podcast on a balcony in Sri Lanka. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Bye-bye.